And before we go any further, let me be plain. Paul is addressing you today. It's always very tempting to read a verse like this and think of how it could be beneficial to somebody else in the congregation. And perhaps you're uh, of a certain maturity in the Christian faith. And you read these verses and your great burden immediately is towards your young people. Well, I share that burden. And these verses, verse 1 and 2, are often preached to young people. But the verses are given by Paul to the entire church, old and young alike. They're often also preached at perhaps a missionary conference or some sort of special event to call people to special acts of service and consecration. But it's not just for them either. Clearly, this is a regular, understandable exhortation to all of God's people, every generation, every age, male, female, young, old, every place, every country in the church of Christ Jesus. This is for you today. If you are a Christian today, then this verse has to mean something to you. You've got to get before God in light of this verse and ask yourself the question, what does this verse mean to me? In what sense am I living out this verse? You have to be able to answer that. Now, you've got to be patient also. This is going to take a couple of weeks to go through. And I don't want you to jump to the conclusion that it's time for you all to quit your jobs, sell your house, and do this or that or the other thing. I read the entire chapter because the chapter explains some of the detail and we can do these things sometimes in very, very simple ways. But even those simple ways are often neglected by the people of God. And so yes, be patient, but also be honest and search yourself the question, in what way am I fulfilling the exhortation of Paul in this verse? Some way, some manner, you can and you must offer yourself to God. This is the next section in Paul's letter. He follows a pattern of his other letters, and the practical exhortations now follow the doctrinal exposition. And these two verses, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, they really set the scene for all that follows, at least up to the concluding uh, greetings of chapter 16. But, but I am going to take some time. And my burden is that you young people would have your life changed this week and next week. That you would not leave this church, if you do so in some future day, having a low understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Because you're living in a climate where people generally have a very low understanding of what it is to be a Christian. That so long as you say you believe certain things and go to church whenever you feel like it, you can say you're a Christian all is well. But that's not the biblical standard. And so I, I do unashamedly want to exhort all of you young people that you realize this is what the Bible teaches regarding your Christian duty as a young person before God. But also all of us need to examine our hearts and ask ourselves the question, am I living out the gospel? Well, my, my burden is that God by his grace would 
bring about a breath of reviving and renewal in our midst. Some of you think, well, I'm too old for that. If you think that for one second, may God please open your heart to realize that God can do great and mighty things in you and through you, no matter how old you may think you are in the service of Christ. We need this breath of revival to come across our congregation for the glory of Christ's name. It is undoubtedly a call to, to, to consecration. That's what I've given as a title. It's a, it's a call by Paul to consecration. Now in your outline in the bullet, and I'm going to, going to cover today points one and two. I had a choice to make either two shorter sermons, one very, very long sermon, and I opted for the former. So you're going to get two shorter sermons, one this week and one next week with the Lord's help. And so today we're going to cover the first two points of this call to consecration. And the first one is the matter of this consecration comes as an exhortation. Consecration is exhorted by Paul here. It's in the words, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now here, I need you to, to think ahead to, to next week. And that is that the words, present your bodies a living sacrifice, is a call to consecration unto God. We'll look at that in more detail next time. But it is a call to a wholehearted offering of yourselves to live for the glory of the Lord. And Paul brings that call in the language of an earnest pleading. I beseech you, therefore. It is not coming in the way of apostolic command, but rather in the terms and the language of an earnest desire of his soul. I, I earnestly plead with you, brethren. Now, this is earnest exhortation and plea. Now, you might ask the question, is such an exhortation really required? Why, why would he go about this matter of exhortation? Surely you may be thinking, well, such living is inevitable. Surely any child of God is going to do this without being told to do this. So well, that's a bit naive. Well, when you think of what Paul has said in Romans chapter 1 to 11, you can be forgiven for thinking that such an exhortation would not be required. He's going to use an appeal to God's mercies. And those mercies are so marvelous and so glorious. Surely any believer who believes these mercies would then give their lives as a sacrifice unto God. And yet Paul still brings the exhortation. But even more than that, you, you go back to chapter 6. And here I want to show you a connection between Romans 12 and chapter 6. Because I've said to you the question, is this really required? Does Paul really have to bring the plea and the exhortation to bear upon their hearts? Because we've seen in chapter 6 that when God works in a sinner's heart, he does a great thing, a mighty thing, a, a radical change worked in their souls. Verse number 4 refers to the believer as being dead to themselves, but really raised to newness of life. Verse number 4. We have been given this new nature in Christ. There's a freedom from the dominion of sin. And so verse number 13 says this, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of right, unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. Now the word yield there is the same word for present in chapter 12. Neither present ye your members. And so 
we immediately see in Romans chapter 6 that the work of God in the heart brings about this presenting of our members to God to serve the Lord in that capacity. And yet Paul still brings these words of earnest plea. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now, as we look at this plea, we should note, first of all, his affection for his readers. The words, I beseech you, convey the earnest plea of a man who wants the very best for those he is addressing, his brethren. These words are familiar but perhaps you're reading for the very first time, you would see the pathos of these words, the, the earnest plea of someone who loves those he's addressing. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Again, Paul, again, often used this term, brethren, to describe Christians. He always comes back to this, this central thought that the Christian church is like nothing else. It is a family of those who are adopted into the fellowship of the saints by the work of the gospel. Christ is the elder brother, and those who are brethren are, are brothers together in that very same family. And so it is that loving climate that's in his mind as he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren. Now, Paul is coming in a, in a humble fashion, pleading for their ear at this time. Now, how easy it would be, humanly speaking, for Paul to write with the proverbial big stick. I insist that you do this. I command you to do this. All of those things he, he could have used as he brings this matter to their attention. And of course, there are times when Paul does use such language. You think it was writing to the Corinthians, particularly there are times where he comes with very firm language of apostolic command. But here the language is of entreaty, loving earnest plea. Remember, Paul was an apostle. He had seen the risen Christ, commissioned by Christ, performed the signs attesting his authority, the miracles of his authority. He is an apostle. And in the early church, his word was the command of the Lord. Such strong language would indeed be appropriate. But I think what you see here is the heart that Paul has for his readers. He isn't harshly guilting them. And that can happen in this verse. You dreadful, wretched, lazy Christians do better. I'm the pastor. I've got this all sorted. I'm doing great. It's about time you guys got your act together. You know, I never miss a prayer meeting. I'm always faithful in evangelizing. I'm preaching the word four times a week. I'm doing all this. What are you guys doing out there? Would that be a good tone? Would it be honest and true? No, it would do nothing regarding my own struggles. You see, I believe Paul, having just detailed in Romans chapter 7, his own heart, understands that this obligation to give himself to the Lord is not in itself an easy thing. And he comes with a burden, earnestly pleading for their ear. You know, tone of address really matters. You might have the truth 
You might have a right line on a certain problem or a difficulty. You may see an issue uh, with a brother or a sister. You may have all of these things in your mind, but how you address them really, really matters. You think of someone who comes, a friend or a family member, and they make a plea for you to listen to something. It makes a difference when you know they want your best. When you know that what their burden is, is for your good and not for your harm. Listen to Paul's example here. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. But also, please note his application to them. I beseech you, brethren, the glories of the gospel and the power of the rebirth, they do not mean there's no need for exhortation and encouragement. Just because you're born again, Just because the gospel is glorious does not mean there's no place for this earnest exhortation and encouragement to give your life for the Lord. You know, I think it's another instance of the remarkable wisdom and the grace of God in using human instrumentality in the church. God changed your heart, dear child of God. But God has, in His grace, placed you into a church context that there be human instruments around you to encourage you and to exhort you and to press you in your work for Christ. We ought to value pastors, parents, friends, and fellow church members as they seek to pursue us for our good. That is something to value. Now, oftentimes... I could use verse number 12, or verse number 1 of chapter 12, as really an example for you to be an encourager. And I'm going to get there. This is an example of what it is to be an encourager. But I also want to remind you that if this church is to go forward as an encouraging church, it also requires not just encouragers, but people to be open-hearted to receive encouragement. That you're not deaf to the earnest pleas of your brothers and sisters in the Lord's work, but that you receive their encouragements and you allow them into your life to invest in you and to bring a blessing to you. Now, that immediately makes you vulnerable. If you realize and people understand and know you well enough, well, they'll they'll, they'll suddenly see perhaps some weakness. They'll perhaps see some, some sin or some flaw in your life. Well, no, I want to keep a, a shield up here that nobody sees who I really am. But you see, this principle of exhortation and encouragement is based upon the principle that you're not what you should be. That none of us are what we should be. And therefore, there's the continual need for others to encourage and exhort us in the things of God. But that requires that you're open to that. It requires that you're prepared to be vulnerable with your fellow members in the church of Christ. I hope you're up for that. Because if you're not, you're shutting yourself away from one of God's providential purposes to make you more like Christ. Oh, I want to be more like Jesus. Well, then be open to receive the exhortations and the encouragements of your saints in the house of God here. You see, Paul has detailed this issue, verse number 8 of chapter 12, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. There are, there are those who have the, the gift of exhortation in the church of Christ, but that gift is, is not restricted to some, 
But rather in chapter 15 and verse 14, we will see this gift of exhortation is, is for all the people of God. Chapter 15, verse 14, And I myself also am persuaded of you, brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. And the sense there is all encouragement. But the encouragement, the word admonish here, it also involves correction. It involves being open to correction. The admonishment here is not just do better. It's stop doing what is wrong. The sense of the word here, it has that, that sense of, of a corrective counseling here. The admonition you have for one another. Just one last reference. We saw this in our message on John 13, uh, not so long ago, over in Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to mention it. I think I preached this in the, in the evening, and so perhaps some of you weren't there for that message. So Hebrews chapter 3, and the verse number 13, we have a different way in which this exhortation comes to us. Hebrews 13, or sorry, Hebrews 3, verse 13, in the context of the warnings of unbelief, the writer says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. What's verse 13 say? Exhort one another daily. In the climate of the church, there is this mutual interaction and fellowship. And Paul shows that in his own apostolic ministry. But his apostolic ministry is not restricted to the apostles. It is then through the apostles spread out through the church. His application to them shows us that. It also shows us something else. And that is, we must recognize that while we can believe the gospel, we may not be living out the gospel as we ought. Exhortations are necessary. Why? Because of the inconsistency that is present in the church of Christ. The unbelievers, they cry, Hypocrisy. I say inconsistency. Because we can be sincere in our profession. We are not hypocrites. We are not living a lie. But we are not living out the gospel as we should. So they see hypocrisy. We say, no, I'm sincere, but you're right. I'm not living out the gospel the way I should. And so there is this need to recognize again that as Paul brings these words to us, we should examine ourselves and say, well, I say I believe the gospel, but really, is that how I'm living it out? Is there that consistency between my profession, my church attendance, and my life Monday through Saturday? It matters. You see, I don't want anybody to think here, well, I, I prayed the prayer I trusted the Lord. It doesn't really matter how I live from here on in. Paul is not guilting you or teaching works salvation, but he is exhorting you to be the best Christian you can be for the glory of God. He is saying, offer, present your body to living sacrifice unto God. So that's something regarding the exhortation of this consecration or consecration exhorted. The second thing is, is to note the motivation of it. Consecration is motivated by Paul, and there, there are two things to note. I beseech you, therefore, and then by the mercies of God. Let, let's start with the therefore. Paul uses this word, therefore, consistently in his writings, really saying, in light of all that has come before, this is how this should affect you. 
It's really very straightforward in, in light of the gospel. In light of all that Paul's explained, in light of the fact that we were enemies of God and are now reconciled, in light of the fact that we're guilty before God and now justified, in light of the fact that we're dead in sins but now raised to use of life, in light of all of these things, therefore, I, Paul, beseech you, offer your bodies and do not be conformed to this world. We're at a turning point in the letter. This, therefore, is a turning point that goes from doctrine to application. Now, most of you will know this, but Paul does this consistently. We see this in several of Paul's letters. When you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to show you just one example of this. Ephesians 1 to 3 has taken, Paul's taken the time to explain much of the glories of the mystery of the gospel. And then chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prison of the Lord, not the language again, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation. Doctrine and doctrinal explanation has largely been stated. Doesn't mean there was no application in the earlier chapters of Ephesians or Romans. But Paul is emphasizing the point that doctrine, Bible teaching, must give way to ethics and Bible morality. What we believe must impact how we live. Now, allow me to digress just for a brief moment to remind you yet again of a crucial application. We, we, we all come to a church and attend a domination that values accuracy in Christian doctrine. We went through all that this morning in our Bible class, emphasizing the importance of precision and accuracy in doctrine. But for those of us with an interest in theology and doctrine, we must never study doctrine as an end in itself. We mustn't do that. The academic world out there will often pursue knowledge for knowledge's sake. And knowledge puffeth up in that sense. I remember, again, back in my times in college, my late teens, early 20s, there was a group of us young men, and we were all coming into reformed understanding of various things, and we'd all gathered around a cup of coffee at different times and, and debate uh, theology and all sorts of things. And uh, I was troubled one night, we were just debating, like, almost to the point, how many angels can you put in the head of a pin type of debate. And the spirit was just so, it just felt overwhelmingly carnal. Just as we were discussing these things, and I was, debating, I was guilty as well as everybody else was, and we were discussing, debating these things, and we came to the point and said, you know, this is going to make no difference in our lives. We're discussing something here for the sake of knowledge to see who's right on something we can't determine, and it's got no impact upon our lives. And one of my friends said, well, knowledge itself is good. Why do you argue with that? It is good to think the right things. You don't want to believe a lie. You want to believe the truth. And so knowledge is itself good. But that's not how Paul uses knowledge. That may be true. But we have the example of the Apostle Paul, the theologian par excellence. And he consistently brings this theology to bear upon our lives and upon our feet on this ground. And we must do the same. If we fail to do that, we are not following Paul as he follows Christ. 
And Christ always applies his theology in ways that impact our living. I, um, I've referred to Romans 12 many, many times over the course of, of, of preaching. But I first preached on Romans 12 over 20 years ago. And I think it's probably one of the very first sermons I still have a record of on a computer. I must have gone from handwriting sermons in those days. I was, I was in my 20s, uh, doing a bit of preaching here and there. Uh, and I ended up, I preached on Romans 12, October uh, 2003. I find the notes of that. There wasn't much I could use, but I'm going to read a section from those notes because it really struck me again afresh this week. I said this. There may be someone here who is a so-called expert in theology, but he's lazy at work, he's rude and uncaring to his wife, never bothers to pray, shows no compassion to his neighbor, and plays no role in the life of the church. This ought never be so. I'm thankful 20 years on, I still say amen to that statement. I would still preach that today. Because a real and present danger in reformed circles that we delight in knowing more and more about the stuff of God, but it does not impact how we live on a Monday morning or a Wednesday night. And that is wrong, people. That's wrong. And we cannot be content with theological accuracy without moral excellence. We will always struggle with remaining sin. But we must not look before God and say in our own mind's eye, it doesn't matter about my marriage or my work life or my place and community life. Those things don't matter because I think the right things. Oh yes, think the right things. But do the right things. These things must come together. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. That's the first thing we see when it comes to this matter of the motivation. It's in light of what he said, this connection between his doctrine and then his application. But the second thing then is this reference to the mercies of God. Again, this is, these little words by the prepositions in the original Greek are, are vast in their meanings. Why do you understand that you will not live out your life unto God without the power of the Spirit of God? And so, yes, I, I get the sense that, that it's by or in the strength of God's mercies that we do these things, but I don't think that's what it means here. And the general prevalent thought amongst the writers on this is that the, the reference here to the mercies of God is in light of God's mercies or in respect of God's mercies or, or out of a knowledge of God's mercies. And that, again, it corresponds with the exhortation in verse number two to be transformed by the meaning of your mind. It's, a, it's an understanding and a knowledge of God's mercies that will then lead to this offering of your bodies, a living sacrifice. And so Paul is seeking to motivate Christian service in light of the mercies of God. But we should note, we often refer to God's mercy, singular. But here Paul uses the term, the mercies of God. It's a literary tool for emphasis. To emphasize that God's attribute of mercy is seen in varied manifestations. God is a God of mercy. That's part of his, his essential nature and attribute. But out of his mercy come these mercies, these manifold manifestations of the mercies of God. 
And what has Paul been doing in the last 11 chapters of Romans? But opening up God's mercies. God is piteous, merciful towards sinners. And from the very start of Romans, we're brought face to face with the awful predicament of mankind. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so I want to take you backwards here. Look at chapter 11, verse 30. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. And again, we saw in recent times that there is the promise and expectation that Jews also will come to receive mercy in verse number 32. So Paul's already highlighted something about the mercy of God in moving people from unbelief to faith. But the obtaining of mercy, uh, again in Romans 11, also refers to the obtaining of Christ's righteousness. Again, remember the, uh, the Jews are seeking for righteousness, but they do not obtain it. And so they don't obtain it by faith, but rather they seek it by works. And so again, we're seeing in chapter 9 through 11, the mercies of God are really emphasizing the fact that we obtain forgiveness through Christ Jesus. That's part of God's mercy. Mercy, unbelievers come to trust. Mercy, the guilty become just and righteous. You've got mercy also back in chapter 9 and the verse number 15 regarding the sovereignty of God. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so in many ways, if you see chapters 9 to 11, explaining chapters 1 to 8 in the context of Israel and the Gentiles, then what you see in chapters 1 to 8 is the unpacking of God's manifold mercies. That's what 9 to 11 is about. So, you go back to chapter 3. And again, I just I don't want to go through all the Romans again, but I want to rehearse in your hearing once more the mercies of God. Because if you're going to understand what Paul is saying here, and you're going to offer your bodies or present your bodies, well, then you've got to understand the mercies of God. And of course, we, we know in Romans chapter 3 and the previous verses, there's a building up of the argument that the wrath of God abides upon all whether they be Jew or Gentile. The wrath of God comes upon all. And so you get the conclusion of verse number, verse number 19 of chapter 3. All the mouth may become guilty before God. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. But then the hinge is verse number 21. But now. But now. Remember the Jews? They seek righteousness but don't obtain it. But you've obtained mercy and righteousness. Oh, what's that defined as? Verse number 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Here's the mercy of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But what does the son do? The son comes as perfect righteousness. Paying the price of our iniquity putting away the curse of the law, but also providing for us a perfect righteousness that we can stand before God. Therefore, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption is in Christ Jesus. What is the mercy of God? The gift of the Son, the life of the Son, the death of the Son, the resurrection of the Son, the ascension of the Son, the intercession of the Son. All of these things are the mercies of God. Whereby we in the mercy of God, come to have that applied to your souls, that we are justified as believers. 
we accept the offer of forgiveness and we accept that in Christ Jesus, whereby having been justified by faith, verse number five, or chapter five, verse one, we have peace with God. What is the mercy of God? That we are reconciled to God. We have peace with God. And more than that, we have access into this grace. These are the mercies of God. Of course, those who have been so justified have also by the part of God been sanctified. They have been raised to newness of life. What does the mercy of God look like in your soul? A brand new heart. No longer dead in sin, but now alive unto God. What does mercy look like? A desire to come to the house of God and sing praise the Lord. That's the mercy of God. What does the mercy of God look like? The desire to put sin to death and put on Christ Jesus. We understand Romans chapter 8 and the verse number 13 is another display of the mercy of God. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if through the Spirit you demortify the deeds, the body shall live. There's the empowering of God in our lives. It's the mercy of God. Need I go on? Well, let me go further. The mercy of God is yours tomorrow. What God has done in your life, He will continue to do. And death, nor disease, nor disaster can separate you from Christ's love. You are secure in that sense. And the mercy of God is the grace of God enabling you to believe tomorrow what you believe today. These are the manifold mercies of God. And Paul says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God. It's like his emotions are welling up. He said, brethren, look at all of this. Look at all of these mercies. We go to the right and the left, forward and backwards, and we, we, see, we just see another example, another display of God's mercy. Therefore, brethren, present your bodies living sacrifice in the light of these mercies. In view of God's mercy, a voluntary and enthusiastic response of gratitude is required. The sovereign divine mercy is of such magnitude that it calls for a life of complete dedication, wholehearted commitment, animal sacrifices will not do. A living sacrifice is required in light of God's mercies. Now you'll see in your outline there are four sort of final concluding observations that I want to leave with you and then we're finished for today. And these are really important if you like, implications and applications from what we've seen so far. Consecration here is a thankful response to mercy, not a reason for mercy. And this one you would understand, and it's, it's, a, it's yet another reminder that Paul never taught works righteousness. He never taught that a person should live in such a way as to secure God's mercy. And yet that concept is prevalent in Roman Catholic ethical thought or Protestant moralism. Think of the question. What will happen to you when you appear before God in judgment? And the person may answer the question, well, I've been a good person. I hope I will receive God's mercy. There is the expectation in their mind that their conduct is going to be considered in such a way that they may receive the mercy of 
God. Never, ever, ever think that. The New Testament, in fact, the entire Bible is very consistent that we live out of God's mercies, not into God's mercies. And nothing we do can bring us into the mercy of the Lord. And it's always a good time to remind ourselves of that. You see, the Roman Catholic Church, if not in all of its doctrinal statements, clearly in the lives of the people, they, they hold the people in, if you like, suspense. Perhaps. Maybe. They deny the people any ground for assurance. And some have the idea that if men and women live uncertain of God's mercy, then they are more likely to live in obedience. Uh, we may all be guilty of that. Men may live better if there is some jeopardy regarding a future display of God's mercy. That, that, that some uncertainty will really govern their hearts. That's not what Robert Haldane says in this. How different is the mind of the apostle from the mind of the world in this subject? The wisdom of the world rejects the grace of the gospel because it's thought to lead to licentiousness. See, see their concern is, if you preach free grace, there'll, there'll be ungodliness all around us. But that's not Paul's minds. They continue. The interests of morality are supposed to be better secured when salvation is suspended on men's good works than when it's represented as flowing from the divine compassion. No. It's knowing the mercy of God that drives us in obedience. And so when you, when you perceive or see someone embarking on a life of sin and iniquity, and they may profess Christ even, you see them in that pathway and that tract of their lives, you should lament that they have not properly grasped the mercies of God. It is when we grasp something of God's mercies that then we put away sin and we put on righteousness. That's Paul's understanding. And Paul knows a lot better than I do. Obedience comes from a grasp of the gospel. So the second thing to note then is that consecration is a humble response to mercy not a repayment for mercy. We don't do this to pay God back. That's not how I want you to understand this text. It is not possible to pay God back. To try to repay God, to, to read this text in such a way, well, God has done so much for me, I must there do so much for him. That is not the right way to think about this verse. We live in that culture though, don't we? You do me a good turn, I'll do a good turn for you. You give me dinner, I'll give you dinner. That sort of ethical repayment is, is so prevalent in our society. And do you know what it does? It robs the heart of the generous from the simple joy of doing something that is kind. That they always feel, well, if I'm doing something that's kind, I'll get repaid eventually. And you, you, you rob people of the simple joy of doing what is right and what is kind. And if we, in our minds, seek to repay God, 
We're dishonoring the heart of God who delights to show mercy without being paid back. You're not paying God back, dear child of God. You're responding humbly to the mercy that God brings. This is sovereign mercy. You have not earned it. You cannot repay it. Simply thank God for His goodness and live live for Him to exalt His mercies to others. Not to try to pay God back. But thirdly, please note that consecration is a rational response to mercy. More than an emotional reaction. Verse 12, verse 1 of chapter 12, sorry, ends, which is your reasonable service. Again, the word reasonable here has been mis, or not misunderstood, but variously understood in, in, in thought over the years. The word itself comes from the word that we get our word logical from. And more than likely refers to rational. Rational worship. Does not mean emotions aren't involved. But it means that our minds are involved in such a way that they drive our emotions. And so a consecrated life is not brought about by stirring up the right emotions, but by provoking the right thinking. The mind is central here. The mind must be renewed, verse number two, and it is the mind that is functioning as believers then give their lives unto God. I had to preach to myself. I do every week, but I had to this week particularly. You see, my burden for a, a consecrated congregation will not be realized by me becoming more passionate in the pulpit or singing better songs or closing the curtains and dimming the lights or whatever it may be. Consecration will not properly come by, by me manipulating your emotions in the right way. That's not Paul's thought here. Consecration comes by displaying the marvelous mercies of God. By preaching the gospel of Christ and Him crucified. And for you, dear child of God, your dullness in Christian living may well be due to dullness in hearing the gospel preached. I'm not looking in any direction. It's a general exhortation, if you like, for those in the camera, behind the camera, whatever the case may be. But there is a correlation between lethargy in the house of God in the Lord's day and consecration the rest of the week. The gospel grips our souls and then drives into the world to serve Christ. That's the order, according to the Apostle Paul here. A grasp of the mercies of God then so governs your soul that you are then thrust into the world to give glory to Christ. And so beware, beware spiritual dullness, both in the preaching of the word and in your own personal reading of the gospel. It may also be due, perhaps, to the devil snatching the seed. The word is preached, it is heard, it is even enjoyed, but it is forgotten before you get to the parking lot. Because the devil comes along and Snatches the seed. Brothers and sisters come and they discuss all manner of things. And very quickly, the word that was preached out of your mind because it's filled with all our stuff. Maybe due this dullness, maybe due to your minds being taken up with everything else but the gospel. 
We live in a day and generation when people cannot think for more than 30 seconds without having to see something else. The shortness of young people's concentration is alarming and concerning going forward. The gospel can be explained in 30 seconds, but to be relished takes longer. To meditate upon it takes longer. And we're living in a day when people are just, that thumb is going, they've got repetitive strain of thumb, flicking from this to this to this, and they're never taking time to consider the mercies of God. Now, yes, we have things to think about in our lives, in work and home and all those things that are legitimate. I'm talking like almost in terms of recreational time that is taken up so much with the fluff of this world that we diminish our grasp of the mercies of God. So consecration is this rational response. Finally, it is a required response to God's mercy, not an optional one. Our response comes from hearts that are so gripped and overwhelmed by the mercies of God that we cannot help by responding, by placing our all on the altar. Yet the inspired exhortation reminds us this is not optional. The question is not if I do this, but how do I do this? You're not allowed to sit here and say, I don't want to do this. If you want not to do this, then you must leave Christ. If you want Christ, then you want the mercies of God. And out of those mercies will come this life of consecration to the glory of God. Not if, but how. In simple terms, as someone saved by grace, God has placed you on this earth with a physical existence, a real body that must be given to God in His service. What that looks like is the rest of the book. Simply, profoundly, serving Christ and His church in a fallen world.